Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Reading from Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heirs, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer slaves, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Good morning. Please be seated. It is my uh, honor and privilege this morning to open up the word to you as we continue our study in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you have not done so already, uh, please do uh, turn your Bibles uh, to that passage. Uh, Now, this is a passage that on its surface uh, may not be uh, immediately evident uh, what the meaning of it is, Uh, but there's a lot of richness going on in here, and I'd like to unpack that a little bit. But by way of reminder, uh, just to uh, catch us up to where we are here in Galatians and and what is is happening in the book of Galatians, Uh, this is to a church uh, of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. And there were Judaizers that were coming into the church, to this church of believers that was essentially saying, yes, Jesus, but if you want to live this Christian life, you still got to follow the law. You still got to use that law as a means of righteousness. Yeah, Jesus is great, but he isn't enough. There's got to be more. It's up to you to complete that salvation process. And so what they were doing is they were using the law as a means of righteousness, as a means of holiness within the Christian life. And Paul goes on to explain that the law was never a means of righteousness at all. He looks at Israel's history. In chapter 3, he subdivides two different things. And he reminds them that there was the promise that was given to Israel way at the very beginning, all the way in Genesis chapter 3. When man had fallen, he said, I will send someone that will make my people righteous. He will crush the head of the serpent. And later on, he continued that promise to Abraham, saying that this would be continued through you. The deliverer will come through you. And this promise will be made and will make you righteous. And so righteousness has always been a matter of the promise, of having faith that God's promises are true. It has never been a matter of following the law. But ever since the law was given, 430 years 
after the promise was made to Abraham, the law was consuming to Israel. Israel was all about the law to them. And it's, it's what they knew and it's what they understood. And so the question then that arises, and, and this is what Paul tries to explain in Galatians chapter 3, why the law? If righteousness has always been about the promise, if it's always been about having faith in God, why did he give the law at all? And so we covered this last week. It was so that we could have a guardian. Israel needed to have sin that was defined for them. And so it was well understood what exactly sin was, that it was understood that sin was rebellion against God, that the punishment for that rebellion was death itself, and it also served the purpose to demonstrate that the law itself could never save. Israel became a demonstration to the world that the law itself was powerless to save. And so his main point was, in the end of the chapter, was that no, righteousness has always been a matter of faith in God's promises. Sometimes the question is asked, well, in the Old Testament, how was it that people were saved before Jesus came? And the answer was, same way they are now, faith that Jesus' promises are true. They believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Today, we have faith that God did what he said he was going to do because he did those things. And that is righteousness. That is holiness. He goes on then. That brings us to our passage here in Galatians chapter 4. This is not a new idea that he's bringing forth to the table. This is a continuation of his argument from chapter 3. And his whole idea is that I am going to create a people for myself. God is the one that is going to adopt a family into his kingdom, not just of Jews, but of Gentiles as well. The whole world. This is his great plan of redemption. So it gives an example. He's trying to explain to these believers why this is the case. And so he gives this illustration at the beginning of the chapter that would have been well understood by them, but perhaps not to us, because this isn't really well defined inside of our culture. But he starts off, and this is verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is an owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, in that time, if a wealthy man had an estate, uh, oftentimes he would have slaves or caretakers of that estate. And they would have young children that may one day be the heirs that are not. But it was up to these slaves and guardians to essentially raise this child. And they would say, get up. It's time to get up. We're going to work the fields. It's time for you to learn the family business. Or let's go. It's time to go to school. You need to learn. And so this child, though he would one day be an heir of the entire kingdom, an heir to all of the father's properties, was essentially no better than a slave. In fact, he was practically a slave, but with less authority. He was being bossed around. But there was a time, despite this fact that he was being bossed around and told, do this, be this, do that, there was a time, and this time was appointed by the father, where that son would no longer be a child, but a full-grown heir. He would be a full-grown son, and he would then be an heir to all of the kingdom and all of the father's property. Now, that for them would have been a relatively early time. 
uh, inside of Jewish culture. That would have been, believe it or not, around the age of 12, where <laughs> they would have the, what they would call the bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah if it was for a girl. And it was that time where it was identified where you would go from being a child to a man. And you would go to the temple and you would uh, declare um, that God is your God and you will seek to obey him. And at that point, the clothes of the child were taken off and they put on the clothes of an adult. And it was at that time that they were considered fully grown sons and as adults. Now for us, that might seem a little strange because the age of 12 does not at all seem like what we would consider to be adults. Uh, in fact, we've, we've even kind of created some of these ideas of, of this transition somewhere between childhood and, and being an adult, uh, this kind of semi-terrible time called adolescence where, you know, where we say, well, they're not, they're not quite children, they're not quite adults, um, they're, they're somewhere in between. And, you know, in our culture, that can last anywhere from, you know, I don't know, we've got 30-somethings that are, you know, not, not quite adults yet. Um, we in our culture don't have this real well-defined time of, of becoming an adult, but they did. And, and that was a time that was set by the father. And so that, that's his illustration, that, that a child wasn't ready to be heir, but while he was, he's under guardians and effectively a slave under that system until the time is right. And so he moves from illustration to application in verse 3. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So there was a time before we were saved that we were enslaved to what Paul is calling the law, that we were enslaved under the same type of system that this child was, do this, go here, do that, be this. And he was under these strong demands. And, and he uses this term, um, which is really interesting, the elementary principles of the world. And he's using this phrase to describe what believers were under before faith in Christ, what this was. Now, this phrase is debated because there's a lot going on in that phrase. Uh, but it's, it's the Greek word, which is stoicheia, stoicheia. And, and this is the same word that is used to describe uh, the alphabet uh, or, or letters of the alphabet or things in a row, um, early elementary principles that, that are basic and standard and foundational but need to be moved on from there. Uh, so if you think about it, the alphabet um, that you probably learned very early on, I, I would hope, A, B, C, D, E, F, G... You know what I'm talking about, or do I need to continue? You're with me? Okay, so you understand the alphabet. The letters of the alphabet don't have any inherent meaning in and of themselves. They're just letters. They're basic foundation building blocks. But if you know these letters, you later learn that you can use these letters and rearrange them to form words that do have meaning. And you can later take these words that have meaning and, and form them in various other patterns to form sentences and complete thoughts. And, and later, as you learn and advance, it, it grows and you can become a better thinker and a better writer and a poet. The alphabet, however, does not have the means to make you a good writer. 
the alphabet doesn't make you a good thinker. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't help you uh, become a poet. The alphabet doesn't have the power to do that. You have to move on from the alphabet. And that doesn't make the alphabet a bad thing. It's just basic. It's standard. You have to move on from those things. It is powerless to advance you beyond those principles. And it's saying the law in the same way is not the thing. The alphabet is not the thing. That's not what you are there to learn. It is the thing that gets you to the thing. The law is not the thing. It's the thing that gets you to the thing. And that thing is Jesus. The law is pointing you to the fact that you can't. You don't measure up. It says do this, but you can't. But there is one that can. And that one is Jesus. That is an important lesson. You need to know that. You need to know the alphabet. And, and God's law is good and perfect and holy. I'd never say otherwise. But it is powerless to transform you into righteousness. Now this word, this, this elementary principles of the word, this is not the only time that Paul uses this phrase. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2. And forgive me, we're going we're gonna to hop around and look at a few different things here. But this is interesting. Um, so um, all throughout Colossians chapter 2 is, is using this um, as, as a guide and a principle to contrast the ways of the world and to the ways of God. He starts off uh, in verse 8. He says, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive by uh, false philosophy and hollow deceptions. He's referring to that as an elementary principle of the world. Uh, then later on in verse, verse 20, and talking about uh, ascetics, Uh, Verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Uh, Verse 20, if you, if with Christ you died to, here we go, the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. The elementary principles of the world, these elementary spirits, are both the same as these same people like the ascetics that were using their actions as a means of gaining righteousness and holiness and favor before God. So as the examples, one of the things that he was using was the ascetics. And what would they do? They would beat themselves. And they would have horrible uh, treatment of the body. Why would they do this? They did this because they believed that this was a means of advancing their walk. This was the path of righteousness. This was holiness in their mind. And so they made a lot of rules and a lot of practices that would get them there. That would get them to whatever point they wanted to get to. And the fact is, though, it wasn't just the ascetics but it was all of the worldly religion as a whole. Now, this is interesting, though. So they were using these practices to try to redeem themselves. They were using literal works of the flesh to make themselves holy and to redeem themselves. Now, class, what have these people not learned? They're trying to redeem themselves by works of the flesh, and they have not learned that you can't. They could have saved themselves an awful lot of time and anguish if they just talked to a child here at Waukesha Bible. They have not learned the lesson that you can't. 
But that lesson is incredibly important because if you don't learn that you can't, you will be stuck in the elementary principles of the world. What are the elementary principles of the world? You got to earn it. Do this. You get what you get. Karma. The same thing. Now, if you were to create a religion nowadays, I can guarantee you that it would be works-based. Even primitive religions, when they, they observe their world, what are they doing? They're saying, well, there's a God, and I think that we are failing him, and we have to work to appease him somehow. When it comes down to it, that is literally every religion one way or another. Every religion is seeking to justify oneself. And there are only two religions in the world. There is redemption through your own work, and then there's redemption through divine accomplishment. Christianity is saying that we are redeemed through the work of God, not through the work of us. And so I don't care what other religion you're talking to about. And unfortunately, there are still some that call themselves Christian that are still working through a system of redeeming themselves by works of the flesh, that believes that they can gain merit and favor through their own works of the flesh. And Paul is saying, this is not Christianity. That is not righteousness. Those are the mere elementary principles of the law, and that is slavery. That is crushing. Why is that slavery? Because you can never accomplish it. And the law is tied here, is using the same word, this elementary principle. Even though this is God's law and it is good and perfect, God's law is saying the exact same thing. It's saying, do this, but you can't. It's saying, be this, but you never can. The only way you can is through Christ. And if you are going back to the law as a means of advancing yourself, of trying to be righteous, you are trying to make the law do something that it was never intended to do, that it never had the power to do. It had the power to crush you. It had the power to show you how badly you're failing. But it could not make you righteous. That's not what it does. That's not what it did. Only Jesus does that. And so there is a time when you are being released from this. So these are the elementary principles of the world. And what is driving this? What is it that, that makes man believe that somehow, some way, it's got to be about me? Well, number one, Satan is driving it. That's why they use the phrase elemental, elemental spirits of the world. It is a deception that Satan is driving to make you believe that the gospel is about you. That it's about what you do, not about what Christ has done. Satan is driving it, and the tool that he uses is fear. Fear that Jesus isn't enough. Fear that you've got to do it. You might be missing out, so you've got to work and try just in case. Satan will do whatever it takes to destroy your faith in the work of Christ and to build up your faith in the work of you. That is his great deception. And he'll do even more to try to point you that you don't need Jesus at all. You got this. And so what he does is he makes the law into a relatively easy, attainable set of rules. 
it goes from God's perfection all the way down to, hey, you know, if you think about it, I, I think I can do this law thing, and I, I, I think I might, I might be able to do this. That is a low view of the law, and it is a denigration of God's perfect law. God's perfect law says, you can't. You can't. There's only one who can and that's Jesus. And the big problem with being stuck in this idea and the elementary principles of the world is that it's incomplete. Now, the ascetics did have part of the picture right and that they were failing and they needed to be redeemed. And, and primitive religions or any non-Christian have part of the idea right that they're falling short. That's partially true. But it's missing the big picture. And God has a big picture plan of redemption. And because life without the gospel does not have God's big picture of redemption, it is incomplete and therefore false. What is God's big picture plan of redemption? He says it right here in our passage. He says in verse 4, In the same way, when the fullness of time had come, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is God's plan. He is redeeming people from all the world. And he is adopting them as sons and daughters into his kingdom. Now, what did it take to do this? Now, he says, in the fullness of time had come. Now, that you could go a long time talking about why when Jesus come was the right time. But all you really need to know at this point was God had set from the very foundations of the earth the time that he was going to come and redeem his people. And the time that he came was the exact right time. And he did this by sending his son. And it took the incarnation, a human and God at the same time, who obeyed the law perfectly for us, He was a man, and he fulfilled the law perfectly in the way that we can't. And because he did that, because he fulfilled the law, he fulfilled in us what the law could not do for us. Because he fulfilled the law, God sees that we fulfilled the law. Even though we personally did not because Christ did, God sees us as perfectly righteous because of the work of God. And he adopted us as sons. Now, adoption is a beautiful thing. And it's interesting that he uses this metaphor. Uh, because adoption is, was very common. It's common today, but it's also common uh, back in this time. Uh, when uh, someone who is born of another family would be adopted into this family. And adoption is special. And it is unique. Uh, from within a relationship. It's not necessarily better or worse than a born child, but it is special and unique because an adopted child is chosen in specific. Say, I want that one. Now, a born child, whatever comes out, well, you, you get what you get for better or worse. And you love that child. Maybe, maybe you would have preferred a little more input in that process, but you, you get what you get, and it's your fault. sort of but an adopted child is one that is brought in from an outside family into yours and and we were brought in from another family into the kingdom of god now it's a common phrase and, and perhaps you've heard it 
we are all God's children. And that's not necessarily true. It is true that humans were created to have the image of God and they, they, they bear the mark of God and that does make them unique inside of creation. But we are not all God's children. We are not all God's children. In John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you don't understand what I'm saying. You don't understand my words because you are of your father, the devil, and you do his will, and you do the will of your father, and he is the devil. We are born into a kingdom of sin and death and darkness, and our father is Satan. And unless God does something about it, that is where we stay. We are born into that family. But God redeems fallen sinners and adopts them into a kingdom of righteousness of his own accord. And he makes them heirs of his very kingdom. That is what Christ has done for us. And it has no bearing on any merit of anything that you have done. This is entirely his work. And it is entirely a work of grace. This is the process that, that Paul is going to talk about and elaborate a little bit more in the next book over. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is God's great redemption plan. He is adopting sinners from one kingdom to another, entirely of his work. And because of the work of Christ, because Christ perfectly obeyed the law, we too are heirs in that. And we are seen by God as ones that have perfectly obeyed the law. And we take on the very righteousness of Christ that he attained for himself. And because Christ paid the penalty that we have for our disobedience on the cross, we have Christ's perfect obedience and holiness. We have been purchased by Christ from the slave market of the law and been purchased out of that into a kingdom of righteousness. This is God's great plan, and it's what he has done. The lie is that we can steal from that glory and think that we have something to enhance that. That, yeah, the, the gospel was started by God, but, but we have to complete it. We're the ones that, that uh, perfect it. And Paul says, is that what began by the Spirit going to be perfected by the flesh? Never. That which God has begun, he will also finish. He will finish. But let me ask you a question. We've, we've looked at the objective realities of the gospel. And, and this being God's work of righteousness. But if we are truly adopted into his family, if, if we're chosen, how do you know that you're part of that? Uh, how do you know that, that you're saved? Uh, we've, we've talked objectively about that truth, but I'd, I'd like to speak subjectively to it. Uh, how do you know? How do you feel it? Um, how do you know that, that you're part of that kingdom? 
Here at WBC, we try to be very consistent in our message, uh, in that which the gospel is. Everything from the pulpit to children's ministry all the way on up to grief share. We want to make it very clear that it is understood that you are sinners and you need to repent because you need a savior. You cannot save yourself. You cannot redeem yourself. You cannot make yourself holy and righteous. Only God can and Jesus did. You are a Christian because you believe that. And I I hope you do believe that. I hope everyone in this room does. But how do you know, like subjectively, how do you you know for sure that that you're in that kingdom, that that you're part of that? Because there are many things that can steal your assurance, that can steal your joy, that can rob you of that. And I'm not to say that you're not saved, but subjectively, sometimes it, it doesn't feel like that. And I know you know that you believe. And, and that you feel that you have to believe. But let's be honest. Sometimes in your life, you've thought, I, maybe you don't say it out loud. I, I don't know if I believe. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what I believe. I mean, is this just a story? You know, I, I know we talk about it all the time, but but do I, do I believe this just because I grew up in America? Is this just... You know, because my parents taught it, or I, I just got used to it. How do you know? And and and, and you got these these periods of of disbelief, and and you don't want to say it out loud. And, and sometimes you even think, oh no, you can't even think that because that means I'm not a believer. Ah, but you did think it, and it did come across your mind. And you have these periods of of doubt. Am I a believer? Do do I know? And, and maybe it's, it's not just the, the times of disbelief, but, but people say, well, you, you know that you're saved because uh, you become more and more like Christ. You know, it's just onward and forward. You're constantly progressing. You're, you're getting more and more like Christ. And, and maybe sometimes you are, uh, but then you have a horrible day <laughs> or a horrible week or a horrible year. And it doesn't feel like you're getting more and more like Christ. Or you have ups and downs emotionally. You go off to some uh, camp or, or, or some uh, big uh, worship service and you get all built up and you have these emotions and you rededicate yourself to God and say, this is it, I've got it. And a week later, done. Ups and downs, just not consistent. Struggling with sin constantly. Think, I got this. And then you're never over it. And you keep sinning and you keep going back to it. And, and that's not supposed to how be for a Christian, right? And, or then maybe there's periods in your life where you're just getting crushed. Life just isn't going the way that you expect it to go. There's deaths in the family. Uh, life just isn't working out for you. And it, and it feels, you know, people say, you know, if, if God is for us, who could be against us? But it feels like God is against us. You know, you know, objectively it's not true, but subjectively it feels like it's against us. So you've got all these things going against you. How do you know? How do, how do you know for sure that, that you're saved if you're going through all these things? Our passage here gives us an answer, and a very common answer. And, and it's very interesting. And you should know if you're asking yourself these things, you're not alone. <laughs> This might be one of the, the second most 
popular question that, that we get asked. Well, how do I know that I'm saved? The, the most popular is, uh, this grace thing? Are you sure? But the second most popular is, how do I know? How do I know that I'm saved? And the answer is, well, you have the Spirit. Believers, all believers have the Spirit. And you might say, oh, okay, but how do I know I have the Spirit? There weren't these flaming tongues over my head when I uh, was saved. My eyes didn't glow red, which would have been awesome, but n- none of that actually happened. How do you know? How do you know? And the reality is, being of Christ, being adopted into this kingdom, being one of His, it's not that you never sin. It's not that all of life goes well for you. It's, it's, it's not that, that you never sin or, or, or that you never have periods of doubt. It's that in your darkest hour, when everything is crumbling around you, when you are struggling with your sin, and even when times are good, you have one place you run to. You have one place, and that is to your Father in heaven. And that's how you know. You love him. You love God. And let me tell you, that is not true of unbelievers. They do not love God. They may talk about God. They may throw up some thoughts and prayers. And and they may end up being mad at whatever God they construct in their head that they think exists. But they don't love God. They certainly don't cry out to him. You, as a believer, have the Spirit. And the Spirit inside of you testifies that God is your Father. And what that looks like in your darkest hour is you're running to your Abba, your Father, your Daddy. You have the right to call God that because you know him. And he knows you. That is only true of believers. And this is what he's telling you today. Now, you may have been familiar with this verse before. He says, we as believers cry out to our Abba, Father. And he reiterates this in Romans chapter 8 in his, in his argument. And you probably heard this before. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into what? Fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. When we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Folks, we are children of God. Believe it. It takes faith to believe that he is the one that is making you righteous, not you. It takes faith to believe that this is his work, not yours. And let me tell you something. Your life in the horizontal right here and now might be a disaster. You might be a disaster. But I can tell you that God is pleased with you this morning. He is pleased with you. How can I say that? I can say that because God is pleased with Christ. God is pleased with the work that Christ has accomplished. And because of that, God is pleased with you. And because you are a believer, because you have faith, not in your work, but in his work, you are one of his. 
And he has released you from the slave market of the law, from the slave market of do this, from the slave market of you got to earn it, and adopted into the kingdom of Christ did earn it. Christ earned it. And so, closing up, he says, we, as believers, are no longer slaves, but sons. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's great redemption plan. Let me tell you, in your Christian walk, there are people that are going to try to steal you of this confidence. They're going to try to steal you of this joy. And what's that going to sound like? Let me give you a little bit of a a cheater note on how you can identify when you're about to hear uh, a false statement. Um, It'll sound a lot like the Pharisees and the Judaizers inside the early church. Yeah, Jesus. But you still got to do the works of the law if you want to please God. If you want to be righteous, if you want to live this Christian life, you got to complete it of your own accord. Yeah, grace, but you still got to. And so you can identify it. There's going to be usually a yeah and a but. (laughs) Yeah, good thing, but here comes the false statement. Let me tell you something. Satan's paths of gospel distortion are broad. And they're paved with yeah, buts. There's going to be those breaks and the decisions that you've got to come up against the law to insert yourself inside of the gospel, to make it about you. It's not about you. It's about the work that Christ has accomplished on the cross. And we understand this because we have the Spirit. We have placed our faith in Christ and Christ alone. You are no longer slaves to this system. Brothers and sisters, you are free. You are free. And it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You are free to no longer be afraid. You are free to no longer live in fear that you don't measure up. Let me tell you, you don't measure up, but Christ does. You are free from the elementary principles of you've got to build it up. You are free from the elementary principles of you got to do this to earn rewards, to make God happy for you. You don't want to be homeless in heaven, do you? You're free of all this bondage. Believe that Christ has earned it for you. Believe that this is about Him. You are free. Free. Free to do what? You are free to be what the Spirit inside of you has enabled you to be. Someone that loves their daddy and someone that loves all of their adopted brothers and sisters. That is what he has enabled you to be. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you that because of your work, we can have assurance that we are saved. And we have that assurance because we know we don't measure up. We know that all of our chips are being pushed towards you. We are abandoning any hope and any attempt that we have in this life. And we are saying and we are declaring to our Abba, to our Father, we need you. We don't got this. 
You got this. Lord, I pray that you would continue this work in our hearts. We thank you for the freedom that you have secured for us. And we place all of our hopes and our trusts in that. In your name we pray.